So Cool Podcast on Hacker Public Radio. In this episode, Arc Camp 11, Karen Sandler on Medical Devices. Hello world, and welcome to the Full Circle Podcast on Hacker Public Radio. This is the second of our highlights of OGCAMP 11, last summer's unconference held at Farnham Maltings in the south of England. The Full Circle podcast is the companion to Full Circle magazine, the independent magazine for the Ubuntu community. Find us at fullcirclemagazine.org forward slash podcast. Next, the presentation from Karen Sandler, Legal Eagle, formerly of the Software Freedom Law Center and newly appointed Executive Director at the Gnome Foundation. Karen wasn't due to speak on the scheduled track, but stepped into an unexpected gap to talk about something, dare I say, very close to her heart. What Simon said, because actually I think it's a it's a good talk to follow. Is um, I, I love seeing the open source initiative slide and software freedoms, and you know talking about how all the things that we really like about open source software and business come from software freedom, and that we have to tend to software freedom if we're going to expect to continue to have those freedoms. So the first thing you need to know about me is that I'm your new cyborg overlord. Um, <laughs> Uh, so the, the, the story about how I, I, I've gotten involved in some of these issues is quite a personal one. Um, I am um, I, I have a heart condition, which I you know it still feels really weird to say that in front of like a, a, a whole group of people. I, I sort of feel like I'm in some support group <laughs> and sort of getting like, hey everybody, I have a heart condition, but um, but it, I do. It's um, I I have a big heart. I have a huge heart. <laughs> So my heart is actually three times the size of a normal person's heart. It's called uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and um, and it means that my heart is uh, is very big, um, but it's also very stiff, and it's 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 pretty clear. It's like a, it's not just that my heart is scaled up; it's that it's it's much thicker. So the the problem with it is that um, if I you know in certain circumstances it might try beating really hard and then become ineffective and uh, the technical term for that is sudden death. <laughs> I have a, a, a very high risk for of suddenly dying, um, and, uh, and 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 that's not the biggest part about my heart condition. Uh, other than that, I don't have any symptoms. I, I, they, I'm not allowed to do things that I never wanted to do, like run a marathon or uh, go racing. Or, or that's a great excuse. Um, there is a chance that I could run across the street to try to catch the bus and, uh, and not make it across the street. And, and there's a solution for it, which is uh, to, to get a pacemaker defibrillator and become cyborg. When I was told that I needed a heart device, you know, I think there are all sorts of like normal kinds of reactions to that. Just first. There was dealing with my own mortality, the the weirdness of it, the fact that I, you know, I'm in now. But I, the longer I went on without getting it, the more I realized that I, I had to get it and that I could be a cyborg for good. But there was another problem that I don't think anybody who I know of who got a heart device before had thought about, 
which is that when the cardiologist slid the device, an example device that was, uh, this is so terrifying, you could take out this little thing and say, look, it's really not scary at all. It's just this little thing. Uh, doesn't it seem friendly? You can have it in your body and it will save your life. And he, he slid it over to me and I said, well, what does it run? And he had no answer for me. And nobody had ever asked him that question before. He said, well, what do you mean, what does it run? And I said, well, it has software on it. That's how it operates. I actually already was a lawyer at the Software Freedom Law Center, so I was thinking about these issues. But I also had been an engineer and a programmer. So I, I you know, I, I said, surely you can tell me what kind of software is on it and how it runs, and can I look at it? And he said, okay, well, we're going to pull out. There's actually a, a representative from the medical device manufacturer here. We're going to pull him into the office and see if, uh, if he can answer your questions. And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, there's software on this device. Can I, and, and you're going to put the device in my body connected to my heart. Can I see the source code? Can I see how it runs? And the answer was, whoa, that's a big problem. Yeah, I'm going to go talk to the company about that. And then nothing. So I called all three of the major medical device manufacturers and asked them, you know, can I see the source code for the device? If I can, I'll, I'll go with your device. Like, uh, uh, you know, I might have, I might find some problem. I'm not sure. I, I'm, I haven't programmed in a while. If, you know, I, I don't know what I can find, but I'll, uh, you know, I'd ask my friend to look at it and we, you know, and, and no, nothing, nothing. I offered them to sign a non-disclosure agreement saying, you know, like, I just feel so uncomfortable having this thing put in my body without being able to see it. Why don't I sign a, a non-disclosure agreement? Then I promise I won't share it with anybody else, which is, you know, antithetical to me being at the Software Freedom Law Center. But I just felt so weird about having this thing that I, I was willing to do that. And they said no. So I kept putting it off, kept putting it off. And uh, my, my parents... You know, every time I didn't call my mother back for an hour, she would, she would call my friends and say, have you heard from Karen? Is she still alive? <laughs> it's a really important issue, but I, you know, I can't risk my life on it. So when Simon said, so I got a device and I decided that I was going to do all this research then. And I happily worked at the Software Freedom Law Center and was able to launch a, um, an initiative there on, on, on this very issue. So I did a whole bunch of research and I found out some things that probably won't surprise you, like software has bugs. The Software Engineering Institute published a study that they estimated that for every 100 lines of code, a bug is introduced, which is not very many lines of code. So even if you get most of the bugs, there's still going to be some bugs. And then I looked at all of these, these studies about the software on medical devices in particular. There's one study that systematically took all of the recalls and other kinds of publications by the Food and Drug Administration in the United States, which approves these devices, and they also put out, uh, you know, warnings whenever something goes wrong. And these people studied all of the, the recalls, and so of all the recalls, of the ones that they could determine were because of software, which wasn't all of them, and of the ones that they could see what was the problem, 98% of them would have been detected if the company who had made the device had done all pairs testing. And for people who here who may not be as technical, um, it's basically testing where you, you, you test for different, for multiple conditions happening at once. Reading about the software, the, the bugs in this software was really sickening because there are all these examples of medical device failing. I mean, we're all aware that there are um, radiation stuff, but there's a lot of stuff since then. There are insulin pumps, where, uh, where it was very unclear what, uh, what field people were entering. And so technicians thought they were entering hourly dosages for insulin delivery, but they were actually entering minutes. 
and a bunch of people died. <laughs> but it really astounded me. And, and every time I would find one of these major medical device failures, it really made me physically ill. And I kept thinking, you know, what are the problems in my device? So I would like put it away and not work on it for a while and then come back. So it took me a couple, like over a year to, 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 to work on this stuff. So I looked into what the Food and Drug Administration does. But what I really found out is what it doesn't. The Food and Drug Administration typically does not review the source code on these devices. I, I couldn't believe it. They don't generally do so unless they already think there's some problem. Because of that, they actually don't even request the software in most instances. What they do is they ask the medical device manufacturers to come up with their own reports about what the software does and how it operates. And uh, then they certify it and they test it. And, but there's no clear set of guidelines as to what those companies have to do. And the idea behind that is, is you know, pretty clear. The FDA basically doesn't want to have to be in a situation where they're saying these are, you know, your requirements are A, B, and C, and this new device has a, you know, there should have been D, but because the FDA, it's a new device, the FDA didn't know it. And so they say the people who know the devices the best are these companies that are designing them, and so therefore they know what kinds of tests they should do. But basically, what this means is that because the FDA is not looking at the source code and they're asking for it, and, <laughs> and they don't have any clear guidelines, you know, any, any clear requirements, they have some guidelines, but requirements as to what needs to be tested, there's a lot of power being left at these companies. And because the FDA is not asking for the source code, they're never getting the source code, which means that there's no copy, there's no repository for the public. So in the instance that there's catastrophic failure at Medtronic, for example, you know, there, there, there may not be a copy of the software on my heart device. And my heart device is only as good as, as it works right now. So, you know, you can talk to these heart devices remotely, but, and you can update them, but if I don't have the source code, I can't patch it. And if there's no one at Medtronic to help me, then I'm just out of luck. I talked to the head of cybersecurity at the FDA, and said, I just want to say that people get really confused about what the FDA does. But we are not here to review every part of every device. Like, we just couldn't do it, and we don't have the resources. We can't review the software. And I was like, ooh, ooh, that means, you know, this is perfect, you know, time for me to chime in and say, well, actually, that's not what I'm asking for. What I'm asking for is for you to require that it be published so that everyone can review it. You know, this way, the FDA outsources to the public. And he said, ah, you know, I hadn't actually thought that makes a lot of sense. What you're saying is that everybody else does that. One of the things that also astounded me as a lawyer looking into this is that in the United States, because of the way that the uh, FDA approval process works, um, it's a federal approval process, and therefore patients are actually preempted from suing under state tort law. So I can't just go into my state court and sue over my medical device because it's been approved on a medical, on a, on a federal level. So it's like there's this whole list of remedies that I, I, I couldn't even go to court and take these medical device companies to task for because it was properly approved at the FDA. Which, you know, to take a step further from what, what Simon was saying, how software freedom is critical of business, like, this is, this is my body. You're going to put something in my body? You're going to put a device and connect it, literally screw it into my heart, and you won't let me see it? It's just, it's madness. So we've got the worst of both worlds. We have no encryption. These devices are, are, have been shown to be hacked, actually. Uh, recently, someone was able to do the same thing with the implanted insulin pumps. Um, those are like kind of the two biggest classes of implanted medical devices. There's the insulin pumps, 
the pacemaker defibrillators. Then there's also like a bunch of uh, pain management stuff and some um, implanted like uh, uh, neurostimulation therapy. And then also somebody wrote me that they are considering getting implanted hearing aids. Um, so implant, uh, hearing implants uh, implanted into their skull, and they wanted to talk to me about you know the software freedom implica implications of this. And what's interesting to me is Harold Belty did a whole bunch of work with uh, hearing aids where they were able to determine there could be privacy implications with hearing aids because as they, they talk to each other, there's an opportunity to intercept that and actually be able to spy on people and get their whole conversation. So like just really many things. So we've got um, no security on these devices. Uh, and the, the reason they have that is because they say that um, it is to basically preserve battery power. But there have been a whole slew of proposals that would not uh, run down the battery, and they still don't implement them. And on the other, other side, we've got closed code. So it's just like completely, totally messed up, right? Nobody can review the code so that, you know, to make sure that it's safe, and there's no requirement for, for privacy or to prevent people from tampering with them. All of this led me to the conclusion that, admittedly, I was biased before as an employee of the Software Freedom Law Center, but that, um, that these devices need to be free and open. It's so easy to see. You know, if, if it's free and open, anybody can, uh, no, you know, anyone can come and look at the system and find out if it has problems, if they can assess the risks. If there is a problem, anybody can propose a patch. Um, in the case of medical device software, you can see that being um, extremely important, but I guess in some ways counterintuitive, but it, 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 you know, it goes the opposite way, which is make our software open but encrypted so that I can choose what patches go onto my software and that's connected to my heart. Um, and the most importantly about this is that I want to be just reliant on Medtronic. Like, we've seen so many companies come in and out. We've seen their failure, failures. We've seen the way that basic things that we expect companies to do don't get done. So I don't want to depend on a single party, a single, as a party because I'm a lawyer, but you know, I was going to rely on a single company. Um, and so it's easy to go from there to say, our software must be safe. You know, and it's not just medical devices, it's anything we rely on for our life and for our society. Um, so our cars, we had that problem where the cars were, you know, I think there were, it, I think there were different examples of different countries, but where the software on uh, cars was malfunctioning, uh, people were crashing, which is problematic. The um, voting machines, we really need our voting machines because that's how we choose to govern our society, our financial markets, and again, our, our medical devices. But what's amazing to me right now is that what is life and society critical is just completely blurring. The way that we do our computing has changed. So, like five years ago, my mother did not use computers for almost anything. She was terrified of them. She didn't want to do anything with them. It was completely not in her world. But in the last couple of years, she's really taken to her Mac, and she now uses a computer for everything. She looks all of her travel online. She, um, you know, she, and, and that's true across the board. Now everybody is using their software for everything, and that means, you know, all of our grandparents are using their software. Our children, everybody is using software for everything. We're using it to see when our buses are coming. We're using it to keep track of, you know, what restaurants we should go to and where our friends have eaten. We're using it to say what we have eaten and what, you know, how to keep track of our diet and how to keep track of our exercise. Now there is already software for phones that can interact with those insulin pumps so that you can interact what you're keeping track of your diet and your exercise with your blood sugar level. So this idea of what is life and society critical has completely blurred. And when people use computers, they expect them to be easy to use. They expect to use them. I mean, this is what Simon was saying before. Even typing in a command to run a projector was too much, you know, was too much effort. And if it was for Simon, who's technically minded, you know, my mother would never be able to do that. 
Um, but my mother expects to be able to use computers, and she expects to be able to use it for everything. So our, our UI expectations have completely changed, which brings me to the desktop. So about a month ago, I switched over from the Software Freedom Law Center to becoming executive director of the GNOME Foundation. And GNOME just released GNOME 3. It's so pretty. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have used it yet, but you should give it a try. It's still early days. There's been a lot of criticism about it, but um, there's been a lot of really positive um, feedback, too, especially for people like my mother, who, uh, who are really uh, reticent with computers. This is basically a complete redesign by GNOME for user experience. It basically, they, they, they solely went about trying to make a better experience for people, ordinary people, not necessarily hackers. Which I think, you know, is, is kind of, it's just, it's sleek and it's pretty and it's easy to use and it, it dispenses with a lot of the things that, uh, that we think, that we used to think people wanted to use about our computers, but we've seen from, uh, from Mac usage and from other kinds of computers that it isn't really what, what ordinary people want. I would just say that I'm with Simon. We need trends towards freedom. I love this 1984 Apple ad because it's just, it's so iconic and it's, you know, it's the, it's the crashing of the, the screen, right? We have no idea what our life and society critical functionality is going to be. We don't know what we're going to rely on. I mean, who thought that we would be relying on our iPhone to interact with our, you know, our phones to interact with our insulin pumps? We would never have thought that. And it's because it's coming out of the way we use everyday computing. We need to build on free and open platforms as much as we can. It's so important. I mean, Simon joked and said, think of the children, but think of the children. <laughs> I mean, think about what kind of a world we're creating. And if we can all work together and focus on free and open platforms, we're going to be much safer ultimately. And I think I am totally out of time to stand this again. The GNOME Foundation and the Software Freedom Center, where I'm still doing pro bono work, are both 501c3s. Um, become a friend of GNOME. We really need your help. Creating great user interface is, uh, it, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of volunteer effort by a lot of people. And, uh, and having financial support is really important. Try out the dome, and I'm CC biasing. So you should have freedom in, uh, in content as well as in, uh, in software. Thank you very much. So that was Karen Sandler of the Gnome Foundation on the subject of closed source medical devices. OgCamp is a joint venture between those lovely podcasters, the Linux Outlaws, and the Ubuntu UK podcast. With more highlights of OgCamp coming up on the Full Circle podcast very soon, including Andy Piper on MQTT and the OgCamp panel discussion. I'm Robin Catling, thank you for listening, and goodbye. Thank you for listening to Hack Republic Radio. HPR is sponsored by caro.net, so head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.